0: Couch
1: Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Richie Houghton has always pushed the envelope. He co-founded Plus 8 Records at the turn of the 90s, formed the Minus Empire, and developed Final Scratch, His productions as Fuse and Plastic Man, as well as countless remixes, are all firmly planted in techno's history. A fierce advocate of developing technology, as long as it doesn't detract from the physical experience of community, he's continued to operate at the limits of techno for decades. In his 2013 Red Bull Music Academy lecture, Houghton reflected on his early days in Windsor, Canada, his connection with essential artists from nearby Detroit, and much more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. I would like to go ahead and introduce a man who needs little introduction to techno fans around the world, Mr. Richie Houghton. Hi. (laughs) Um, Most of your music is... Uh, quite long and oftentimes in the context of an album and needs to be heard in that context, as you have said in the past. However, we're going to go ahead and play a track anyway, um, and a track in full. So let's enjoy uh, a track before we begin. This is called Spastic. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah. I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom.
0: Well, I wasn't sweating before we started. Now I am. (laughs) Um,
1: I didn't play that as that full thing to be annoying or anything or tedious. I don't think
0: I've heard it the whole thing like that probably since I recorded it. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: I wanted to ask you, I mean, recording that, you did that live as a live take. Right? What was the process?
0: Yeah, it reminds me of how hands-on the, the recording process was because it was only, if I remember right, it was, an, of course, a 909 and an 808 drum machine, uh, probably some 707 in there. Uh, but that was it. So it was just me jamming with those three instruments. Um, and, um, you know, you hear at the end that it's, you know, you're, I'm playing with the, the the tuning and decays of the different snares, and also later playing with uh, just the EQs and and using... Every kind of knob and, and button and fader on the mixer and on the, the those three instruments to try and make something that was engaging for what felt like 20 minutes. But, um, but actually, uh, the 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 original song was like much much of my music that I was recording at that point. About a half an hour, 45 minute jam. Um, just press start and see where it went. And uh, usually in those jam sessions, I would get a really good beginning. And then somewhere in the middle, I'd get a good jam part and then I'd have a good ending. And that's pretty much what happened there. It's, I think there was a little edit at the beginning and then there was another edit to put the end on. But um, pretty much what you hear is what happened, you know, for those 35, 40 minutes in my studio.
1: So a lot of the early stuff was completely live jams. And yeah, why the- was that? The process, there, there, why are you going for 45 minutes?
0: Well, there was, a, there was a computer running the clock on that, like an old Atari ST. Uh, but, um, you know, you, you follow, um, you know, the people and the influences around you. You do by uh, uh, following, you know, what you see. I used to go to Detroit and see some people making music, Derek May and Kevin Saunders and these guys, and they all did their things by playing live and jamming. You know, I didn't, again, the most of the instruments you couldn't actually sequence. You, you, could, you could only sequence in very simple terms. Um, so there was really no way to, you know, sit on a computer screen and plan everything out. And um, later on, when I did try to do that, it never felt actually real. It felt too manufactured. So I always just followed that thing of, you know, getting all the machines running. You know, even when there was some computer stuff, having some loops on the computer screen or whatever. But then just turning it all on and, and doing most of the construction of the, uh, you know, of the, and the arrangement live by moving faders and, and muting and, um, or turning things on the, on the machines. Like, I think a couple of times you can hear things coming in and you can, you can feel that, you know, push and pull of the faders or the, 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 the knobs on the 808.
1: Definitely gives a dynamism that, you know, doing something not live wouldn't happen have.
0: Well, well, you know, I was just, when I was listening to this, it reminds me of how I DJ now, like I'm doing, you know, of course it's pre-planning, but I do as much live as possible. I love having this controller because it has this knob on and that controller, and I have something else over here and I'm constantly manipulating and trying to, you know, work this energy level. And I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And that's exactly what that was.
1: So you said this is something that you saw people in Detroit doing, where were you coming from?
0: Well, yeah, it's also the the equipment, you know, this is, that was recorded in 1992, I think, came came out in 93, so around that time. So again, I had an Atari ST, most of this instrument, uh, most of the equipment wasn't fully MIDI. So there really wasn't a way to plan everything out. And, uh, you know, I, I was traveling a little bit in the UK and some of the producers I met over there had, you know, more money and they had newer computers and they were putting everything out in these arrangement windows. And I liked their records, but I didn't always like the feeling of the records. And especially if I tried to do what they were doing, it always something, it lost the feeling of, of what I was trying to get to. So, you know, and I love the, rec- the, the feeling of all those Detroit records, you know. I used to go to Derek May's house and you'd have his kitchen here and over here you'd have basically like this like actually always on the floor you know a couple of 909 drum machines some other things in the mixer and it was always running every time I went to his house there was something running and then sometimes he'd go over and like turn something off and bring something up and that's I was like oh, I guess that's how he how he records you know and uh, the one thing that we all did was we had access to a uh, reel-to-reel two-track tapes, so we would You know, there was some post-production. We would record, like I said, for half an hour, 45 minutes. You know, I remember some of my other tracks were actually recorded over two DAT tapes. So they were like 90 minutes long. And then I would just go back and, you know, find the pieces that I liked and turn that into an arrangement. But it was never like, you know, cutting and splicing so much that you started to take the life. It was always, you know, two or three edits and kind of highlighting the best parts of what you had captured, where the the live feeling really came out.
1: So you're in Windsor, uh, Canada, and you're going to Detroit to Derek May's house. So you grew up in Windsor uh, for the most part. When uh, did you learn that there was this music happening in the city?
0: Uh, You know, Windsor in Canada is a very small place. So if you uh, wanna, if you think you're different or you want to be different, you very quickly have to cross over into America and, uh, into Detroit for other opportunities. You know, I started going there, I think before it was for records, it was for like resale shopping. Cause there was like really big places where you could find really cool clothes. And then that went from the resale shop and next door there was a place called off the record and you can go there. And, you know, there was, it was a small record store in Windsor, but, um, uh, you know, that cool group of, oh, well, I don't know, we thought we were cool. Um, cool, a little group of people were picking over those records. So if you wanted to have a record that nobody else went had, you went to Detroit. If you wanted to have clothes that looked a little different, you went to Detroit. Um, and so that just kind of became my, my weekend thing to do. And then, uh, you know, I didn't really find music being played in the nightclubs in, in, uh, in Windsor. At that point, I was, well, I was actually more um, concerts, so, you know, I was into Skinny Puppy, Severed Heads, Front 242. These people were coming to Detroit and playing. So it was always, you know, it was always going to Detroit. That was, uh, that was. Um, if you didn't go there, it was pretty boring in Windsor. Um, and it's
1: pretty close as well. It's just yeah. right across the bridge.
0: Yeah, it's like North or South London or, um, you know, like Manhattan to Brooklyn, you know, for about fifteen minutes from my house, which was outside of Windsor, I could be through the tunnel or over the bridge. So it was. Uh, yeah, it's to you know we the people in that in that area call Windsor a suburb of Detroit. So it, it was uh, wasn't like a, a a big journey or it, you know it was an adventure though.
1: You started DJing in a club
0: in Detroit. Um, yeah. Well, I tried to, um, I was collecting these records. So I, I kind of was known in, you know, this group of friends in Windsor. There was a lot of actually Windsor kids who wouldn't go to Detroit. So, Why is that? Um, this is like, you know, mid eighties and still, I think up until 1979, 1980, Detroit was the Myrtle capital of America, which wasn't a very good advertising campaign for, you know, Windsor, mom and dad's to go to Detroit. And so, you know.
1: Convincing your parents to let you go there.
0: Yeah. Tough. You know, I I was born in England. Born in England. I went to Canada in 1979. So when we got there, it was like, well, here's Windsor, here's Detroit. This was kind of, that was our area to explore. So even before I was going there by myself, my mom and dad would take us over there shopping, going to a mall, going to a cool breakfast place. You, you know, they just wanted to take in this whole new environment that we had just ourselves into. And so that was my mentality too. you know, explore your surroundings. Whereas a lot of other kids, their parents didn't go there. So, you know, you had the rebels, you know, that would go there because their parents wouldn't go there. But a lot of kids were just like, it was so you don't go to Detroit. So back to, you know, collecting records, there was a group of kids in Windsor who wanted to hear good music, who wouldn't go over there. So I put on and nobody would give me a job so I was like let's you know put on a a dance party. It was like 86, 87 and uh, you know all my friends came down to hear cool music and uh, the club owners were like this is amazing you filled our club you know we're empty you want to play every week so I said sure I'll play every week and all my friends came for like the first week and the second week, and third week, some people didn't come, and the fourth week it wasn't so many people, and then the fifth week it's, yeah well, where are all my friends and then i didn't have a job anymore <laughs> but um, but I wasn't a very good DJ. I just had really good records. It's half the battle what's it then? which, the which is half the battle, exactly, especially you know at that point, you know, music is so accessible now at that point, it was very hard to find those records so, so um what it did teach me was that, and you know, I was an introverted, shy kid, you know, I wouldn't wasn't very good at getting up in front of people and talking and all this stuff, but um, being in a DJ booth, I could, you know, control this crowd and, you know, take them on this experience and just have fun playing cool music, and I was in a way, the center of attention, but not completely the center of attention. It's not like I was on stage uh, with a guitar or something. So it was a really interesting dynamic for me. And those three or four weeks where we did these gigs, it really kind of pushed that home. And after losing the job, I basically went into my basement and just practiced to become a better DJ. But it was that was really the point of no uh, point of no return. I, had, I had tasted something that I really, really, really enjoyed.
1: What was the club in Detroit that really uh, inspired you to try to get another job as a DJ, or were you just looking for anything at
0: that point that where you could play? I probably was looking for anything, and I would, you know. Uh, but one of the clubs I used to go to, uh, one of the uh, venues was called St. Andrew's Hall. And that's where I was seeing people like nitzareb and, and, and all that kind of electronic Gothic alternative music. And downstairs, I had this club called The Shelter. Um, I actually started going there before I was 18, they had a thing called Teen Night. So, which is really cool like a teen night just for like weird kids who wanted to wear black and eyeliner, you know, who are 15 and 16. Like, that, I still think that was a really cool thing. I don't know if it exists, exists anymore. Maybe I'm just so old that I don't realize it. But, um, but I went, so I started going to that. You know, um, and then I got fake ID and then started going there and just going to uh, listen to DJs. There was another club down the street called uh, the Majestic Theater where Blake Baxter, another well-known Detroit producer, was playing. Um, and just started, um, you know, being part of the scene. Like, I I, I didn't, it wasn't me who got my first job. I had a, a very... Um, a beautiful blonde girlfriend who thought I was the hottest DJ in the world. I still couldn't mix worse shit, but she thought I was a bomb. And she bugged the, the owner of the, the shelter so much that he basically gave me a job or a tryout to uh, you know stop her harassing him. So.
1: <laughs> well, and it's important uh, to have these types of people in your life. Uh, <laughs> but also you met but, but, a but, number of people who yeah, became I, very I think, important think,
0: later on. Sorry, I, I think no. the, the point with that was that, you know, um, um, you know, I wasn't... I love doing, like, DJing, uh, but... I wasn't that confident. I wasn't the kid who was going to go up and say, you need to book me, I'm the bomb, or, you know, whatever. So it was, if she hadn't have stepped on, you know, in front of me and been my first, you know, cheerleader or or fan club and booking agent, I wouldn't have got anywhere.
1: Who else did you meet there, Uh, aside from everyone? Who else was very important later on?
0: Um, uh, Well, that was, you know, the, the shelter was um, kind of, there was a couple of clubs like Majestic Shelter um, uh, that were focused on electronic music, not just techno, not just house music. It was also, you know, Susie and the Banshees, like anything kind of alternative. And, uh, you know, but so people were kind of gravitating there. I had um, a friend, um, well actually there was this one crazy guy who used to run around, he was my second biggest fan. Uh, and his name was Kenny Larkin, and my DJ name at that point was Richie Rich. So he would run around, and I was playing the very beginning of the club, you know, when nobody was there. So it was me playing to nobody except Kenny running around screaming my name, Richie Rich, you know, getting everyone hyped up. So, you know, he it was, you know, and then uh, later Kenny became one of the artists we signed to my first record label, Plus Eight, um, at the same club. Uh, John Aquaviva used to come down uh, every couple of uh, weeks. Daniel Bell used to come down. Um, so it was really, yeah, it was that kind of um, um, the foundation was being laid by the people who were were coming. You
1: know, tell me about starting that record label. Why? What? At what point did you know uh, we got to have a label?
0: Um, well, I remember at that point there was a really important. Um, it was called DMC Disco Mix Club, it was a really big thing in the UK, and um, you know, they would have DJs. Uh, basically, what that showed us, what we, what we thought is like you weren't, didn't matter how good you were as a DJ, if you wanted to make it on an international scene, you needed to do a record or something. Yeah. Uh, this DMC club took DJs and made mega mixes, so that was kind of our first angle, uh, John. Uh, and I, uh, John had a studio also in Canada. We started getting together to create this Detroit techno mega mix with our plan was, we're gonna make this mega mix, get on DMC, the world's gonna discover us and we're gonna be on to the next step. Um, We never actually finished the mix, um, but it got us into the studio working together and starting to make music that we thought was really cool. Uh, and then I started to play it to some of the other people in the Detroit area. Um, I don't know if I actually ever ever played it to Derek or Kevin or, or Juan Atkins, but you know, their friends and their that there everybody had their circles. Um, kind of played it to some of those people, and nobody was really that interested. And it just came back down. It was like you know to the point if you if we didn't do it ourselves, you know, we weren't really gonna go go anywhere.
1: Were people like Derek, Juan uh, and Kevin, sort of deities at that point? Or were they just guys that you knew from seeing around?
0: I th- I think they were, you know, they were more well known overseas. I, I remember at that point, Derek, and they, they were all going and playing, you know, uh, sunrise events and things in, in the UK. Um, but yeah, it was pretty pretty low key. Like you know, Kevin used to come down and be like, "Here's a, um, like a pre-acetate of the new inner city or or something that they were working on. Check this out and play." So it was a really cool, relaxed time. You know, the shelter hel- held 200 people. Um, you know, around that time, Derek and those guys opened the Music Institute, which was considered to be kind of the Epicenter of in the world of techno music, and that was about 150 people. So it wasn't like there was a mass explosion of Detroit techno. It was you—you uh, you were hearing it on the radio a little bit with Jeff Mills and some other people, but it was still very, um, um, yeah, it was still underground or not so well known.
1: Why don't we play an early plus eight release, just a little bit of one? Um, this is called
0: elements of tone
1: what do you remember about recording
0: that listening to it now reminds me that uh you know that's one of the first tracks that john and i recorded but it actually has all the elements that you know we reused or i reused in uh my fuse records and uh kind of you know built upon with plastic man you've got an 808 you've got some kind of choir um string and and then uh, you've got the 303 in the background um but what I remember is also there's a couple of samples in there and we had, we we I think we were at a Kai S nine hundred samplers. We were I think we had one second or two seconds that we were able to sample. So it was really like, okay, what can we do with that time? And then what can we like play with one finger, you know, over a scale that sounds interesting.
1: What you said the three oh three, which I is seems to be the instrument for you mm. over the years. Is that the way you see it as well?
0: Yeah, um, I remember those early sessions with John turning on a um, Roland TR nine hundred nine drum machine, which is also in there. And actually, the hi hat pattern in there is totally uh, me trying to do a Derek May hi hat pattern. Uh, so we turned this nine hundred nine, and he was, "I play with this." And as soon as I pressed start, it sounded like all these Derek May records that I was totally in love with. Um, So I had a lot of those first, like finding out, okay, this is Juan Atkins machine. This is a Derek May machine. And then kind of taking those machines and trying to imitate my favorite records by those guys. And then slowly finding that I wasn't very good at that. And then maybe putting that machine away. And then kind of, you know, taking missteps into a journey that ended up finding the right pieces um, that I actually felt connected with. You know, and that's what took me, you know, down to, to the uh, Roland TB303 machine, because at the same time as really being into Detroit Techno, which was mostly 909s, 808s, DX100s, Pro ones, uh, I was also really into Chicago Acid House, which was, yeah, again, some of those machines, but more 707 and 303s. Um, and most of what Plastic Man became was 303. 707, 909, A bit of the, in my mind, at least what I thought I was trying to do when I look back at it. Kind of the, the 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 high hats and clatter uh, and futuristic notes of Detroit and Derek and 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 Derek and Kevin more so, and the acidic, hypnotic, trippiness of um, future and bam bam and all that you know early and also throw in some UK acid house there because I was really into that I used to have pants with smiley faces all over me and that was pretty bad
1: (laughs) um plus eight early on was really interesting I guess in the sense that it was very international quite quickly Why did that happen so quickly? I mean, a lot of it's accidents, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it was an an accident. What I guess what John and I noticed was that we couldn't, we weren't, we were part of the Detroit scene, but we were always outsiders. So we weren't from Detroit, but we were hanging there and, and doing our thing.
1: You got into a little bit of trouble with
0: yeah, well, the first we, release, was it? Yeah, well, yeah, because we, we stamped on the first record two white kids from Canada with a red sign, stamp saying the future sound of Detroit. So there's there's still some people today that want my head for that. Uh, but, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we like you know, I think we, at that point when we did that, we felt very part of that scene, you know. Um, but after that, we did feel that, okay, maybe... Uh, we're not as part of that scene as 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 we thought we were, and we could really see, you know, Metroplex and Juan Atkins had their camp, Derek had his camp and his friends, and and so it came back to us. Okay, well, who are our friends? What can we do here? And you know, Daniel Bell was another Canadian who was coming down to Detroit every weekend to play music and listen to music. Uh, you know, Kenny was from from Detroit, but we were all bonded by our love of Detroit techno. You know, we used to drive around the freeways, you know, Kenny and I listening to Derek May tapes on repeat, you know, like not talking, just like smiling and like turning it up and uh, trying to feel part of what was happening. So as we started to grow with Plus 8, we wanted to find our own family and we wanted to find other people around the world who were in the same boat as, as us, perhaps not from Detroit but heavily inspired by Detroit. So the you know, that first, first few records, you know, Kenny was from Detroit, so we're like, okay, Detroit on the label. John was from London, Ontario. So he put London, most people thought it was London, England. And then uh, we started to get demo tapes from, um, uh, you know, around the world. Uh, one of the first demo tapes we got was from, uh, from Holland, from a guy, uh, Speedy J, Yokum Pop, And so uh, Rotterdam was on the, on the label. So very early on, where most labels at that point were very regional. You had this plus eight record that said um, London, Detroit, Rotterdam, and there's probably something else on there. So it was it was like that, you know.
1: Why did you decide to put those things on the label? Why was it important to say, gosh, this is a worldwide thing? Or were you even thinking in that context?
0: Um, well, you know, it, it wasn't like we were just sitting by ourselves in... in, 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 in you know, in Canada, we were, we had our eyes out on the whole international circuit. Derek and those guys were going back and forth. Um, You know, there was this massive explosion in 1988, 1989 of the summer of love in the UK. You know, Germany was, had this whole crazy techno scene going. So we felt that, um, you know, we wanted to be part of that. And we, we wanted to be an international label, you know, maybe it was just because we didn't know enough people around, but I think, um, yeah, it comes back to, to that point. We, we were maybe, you know, John had, uh, is uh, also, uh, what do you call it, like um, um, an import into Canada. He's uh, Italian. So I was British. You know, I just moved to Canada not so long before. So we weren't really from there. We, we just felt part of a bigger picture. And we, and we all, of course, we wanted to project that too.
1: You were also throwing parties uh, at a certain point yourself um, throughout Detroit and in Canada and Windsor. When did it change from I'm playing in a club to I want to do my own thing and sort of control the environment?
0: There was a, a, a change in American um, radio policy, I think, in the very early 90s where the programming was quite decentralized. Um, and so in Detroit and Chicago and New York had really cool radio stations, but suddenly they were being bought up by multi conglomerates. And then the programming was done kind of nationally. And at that, as that happened, hip hop came in and kind of suddenly took over the, the, uh, the, the, the airwaves. And so that kind of destroyed part of the momentum of the scene in Detroit at that point. Because it was, at, you know, when I was, even though I'm saying it was kind of like still underground, you know, there was a lot of uh, radio access to cool electronic music back then. You know, even at, on, on, on the weekdays around noon, There was this guy playing a house mix for half now called the Midday Cuisine Mix. So when people went to, you know, had their lunch break, they would turn on house music. It It was really, really cool. But suddenly all these things changed. The clubs then, you know, wanted to like have formats that was on the radio. So again, more hip hop came in, techno was pushed out. And suddenly most of us were out of jobs. Derek and Kevin and some of the guys who were well known. Uh, and people who could go overseas went overseas more. And kind of, so we were left a little bit with a, a void.
1: So the locals didn't really have as many places to play on a regular basis.
0: Exactly. So it was like, well, you know, do um, do we give up or do we start programming our own parties? And you couldn't even take over clubs. So then it started, you know, the great thing about the back end of, of a terrible history in Detroit is that there was tons of vacant you know, land and buildings, and so we were able to appropriate these places for nothing or really cheap, and load a sound system in and uh, start doing parties, and and that all started to happen as um, I think Plus Eight and myself were you know were were starting to find our specific sound. So we were finding a sound. We were starting to throw parties that sound in this certain environment started to kind of attract a certain type of person. And that whole, you know, uh, resurgence of say, underground electronic music in America started to happen. What type of person is going to a plus eight party back then? Oh, well, and... um,
1: Or you can say what type of sound were you playing if that's an easier question.
0: Well, that, you know, What's great about uh, Detroit and the Midwest is that whole area has always been very open to an alternative type of sound. You know, you also had wax tracks and the industrial sound in Chicago, you had Toronto, which wasn't so far from us, uh, Montreal. So we are, you know, in a really sweet spot in the Midwest. So we were attracting people from all over, you know, whether it was 500 people or later, 1,000 or 2,000. You would have 50% from the greater Detroit area and then people driving 10, 12 hours to the parties. Um, the sound was, uh, at that point, very, very techno, faster than it is now, but um, I wouldn't, intense, I wouldn't say, I, I I never thought what we were doing was really aggressive, but it was very intense. You know, you had massive sound, you had a dark warehouse, you had one strobe light and you had like this pummeling. Yeah, it's like the first track you heard Spastic was made for those sound systems. It was, that was what it was like. That was supposed to be, you know, kind of the peak of the night, which that peak kind of went for eight, nine hours, you know.
1: There was a particular sound system basically known as the system Mm. in your life. Can you sort of talk about that?
0: Yeah, that was a a big sloppy Serwin Vega system. Like uh, if you put some of the music that's made today on it, it probably wouldn't sound very good because it wasn't very pristine, but um, spastic was made for it. They had these killer low bottom ends, these scooped um, wedges that we would do these four corner Uh, setups and the four corner setup was quite a new mentality uh, right there was there was um, you know you went to clubs and they had you know like these lights little speakers up there like club systems today where you have you know output or uh, most of the clubs here with function one like man the systems are fucking killer but clubs didn't have that then They, they were made for like 80s pop records you know so it was up to us to put a system in there that gave respect to the records we were playing and we not only wanted it to have presence and to feel massive we wanted it to look massive we wanted you know to have these giants that were kind of ominous on each corner of the dance floor you know with maybe lighting behind so it would nearly be like you know yeah giants are somehow alive uh, and kind of encapsulating you holding you onto the middle of the dance floor. So, so we spent a lot of time on that. Like there was very little, well, actually there was in a way, a lot of decoration, but, um, uh, our decoration was made to take away all the senses from the people who are participating. We wanted people to walk into these, uh, locations, these, um, uh, warehouses and not, um, uh, be able to recognize where they were, especially if there was another party there a couple of weeks later or whatever. So we would cover everything in black plastic, you know. Uh, And so you'd walk in, you'd really be hard to figure out which was up, left, up and down. Then you'd see a shadow of this huge speaker and then you would be, you know, vibrating from the base, you know. Later I did a follow-up to, I guess kind of a follow-up to uh, spastic and that was called sickness because at one of these parties, when I played Spastic, when the kick came in, you know, people—some people—were actually like in the back of the back of the room, which we found out later when we were cleaning up. we were like, "That's cool." So that, you know, that warranted its own track. Uh, but that was, the, you know, when when that kind of situation, we're like, "Man, okay, we hit it tonight."
1: <laughs> and you're continuing to do this sort of thing—the kind of uh, taking over a space and making it feel like it isn't normally in the night that you do in Ibiza talking about it earlier, you're doing things to make this place that you go to feel different. Why is that important?
0: Well, well, we saw the power of and felt the power of what we did in Detroit. You know, I could play, I played my best sets there. You know, I could take people deeper into where I wanted to take them. If we controlled the whole environment, it's, I think that goes also back down to, Starting your own record company, you know. Then it wasn't just about the music. We could, you know. I was doing all the graphic design. You know, I was one half of the day in the studio learning nine oh nines, and the other half of the day learning Corel Draw on on the computer, so that we could make sure that when someone went to the record store, they're like, "Wow, that looks like a cool record." And then when they put the needle down, they're like, "Man, that kind of that sounds. That's what I was expecting." You know. Uh, so that went on to you know, controlling the, the, the parties that we're doing to present the music in the best way. And, and that still is very important to me today. You know, it's, um, you know, music has always been the kind of underlining foundation of all the things I've been about. But when you're trying to create experience for somebody, it goes way beyond just one sense. And that challenges me uh, as an artist and gives me more potential or, you know, to take people on a deeper experience.
1: Is it also sometimes constraining, though, once you have an aesthetic and you push it and then you become known for it and perhaps it becomes a stereotype or a cliche for some people?
0: Um, Yeah, you know, I would... I'm sure, I guess that happens to people. Maybe it's happened to me. I think one of the problems is, is to keep one upping yourself and giving people new experiences, you know, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's like, Oh, it'd be great just to show up and play, um, you know, some music and not worry about the whole infrastructure of the building. Um, so I painted myself a little bit into that corner, but that comes from the time when you couldn't just show up at a club and put a great record on, cause probably it sounded like shit and the lights looked like garbage. Uh, and actually sound systems are much better now, but still, you know, if I don't look after how I'm gonna be presented, you know, at a festival, like, what, who, you know, who knows what lighting they're gonna put behind me? Who knows what visuals they're gonna put behind me? You know, I, I really don't wanna take a chance at that. I have, uh, you, know, um, you know, it's out of respect to the music that I'm trying to create or the experience I'm trying to create by the music I play from other people, It's much, you know, there's there's a bigger thing happening.
1: For some of the young artists out here, how do you navigate sort of controlling the environment, but not, you know, uh, getting club owners or other people angry at you for being some sort of diva?
0: Well, I'm sure some people say I'm a diva, but um, I'm very hands-on. I think um, um a diva is someone who probably says, well, we need this before I show up and then doesn't show up until they play. Um, I'm usually down there hanging the plastic. Uh, maybe not as much as I used to, but there's, I I see the whole thing, what's happening on stage or at a club as, as, as part of a, a greater thing. So you have to be aware of all these different points. Club owners, uh, festival owners don't always appreciate it, but I'm quite sure that If we deliver what we're able to deliver, we can make the experience better than what that club owner or that festival person had in their mind.
1: And I'm sure once you have one success, you can point to it and say, this is what we've done here.
0: It's still a struggle. Like, you know, it's club owners and festival owners are usually only mostly uh, considering the bottom line. You know, like we're doing this uh, 13 week residency in space in Ibiza and uh, you know it's a constant struggle last year and this year to get the the budgets that we want to be able to turn this into a sake bar turn that thing into a cave turn this into you know something else and do that just for one night a week for 13 weeks and then go back to the promoter this year and say well we're going to do a totally different well can't you use what you used from last year no we've already done that so <laughs> it's it, you know, you, you have to uh, try to slowly find people who understand or respect or believe in your vision and um, uh, want to be part of it. You know, that's, you know, my, um, I think, um, steady momentum and climb over the last 20 years has been by, you know, having continuity between my ideas, sustaining you know, interesting ideas and slowly finding the right people to continue those ideas. That's sometimes really, it's hard to find the right people.
1: Telling the story of what you've been doing, where you've been in the past is something seems like you're very passionate about, especially now with the control uh, tour that you've done recently where you went, it's called Control Beyond EDM, right? Yeah, yeah. And basically you went around and lecturing uh, and then playing a gig at night. Mm. Um, and the lecture was taking the form of sort of bringing together people and just showcasing production
0: stuff. It was talking about production and history. Um, you know, the the basic idea of that was that, and why we called the first version Beyond EDM, is that there's so much uh, hype on this new f- form of electronic music and uh, but there's not so much depth and I think it's very easy for this our whole industry to get swooped under this EDM brand and suddenly it's like you know some kid on stage playing the same songs you know every night in order you know and maybe not even hardly touching the equipment so we wanted to bring depth the story the history and some integrity back into electronic music. And
1: you've also been uh, very interested in sort of doing interviews and talks with people like Dead Mouse and Skrillex. Why is that something that you think is even worth doing? A lot of artists would say, I don't even want to be associated with something
0: like that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a lot of really bad electronic EDM artists and people out there. But I wouldn't say Skrillex or, or Deadmau5. Either or, would to I, those. but
1: obviously there's a perception
0: there sometimes. Well, yeah, well, you know, um, man, um, this is a, there's a greater world happening here of this, you know, electronic music. Okay, it sounds like it's a huge thing now, but, you know, we've been slowly um, building that. For the last, uh, you know, you know, not just me and my gang, but a whole lot of people all over the world, for 25 years, uh, and you never know which way it's gonna gonna go. So, bringing people and having conversations with with Dead Mouse, with Sunny, and showing the different facets of it and how extreme and extreme different directions it can go in uh, is, I think, valuable and important. You know, just to sh- again show. The, the, the depth of history and also how far it's come. You know, to see Sonny on stage with one laptop destroying 25,000 people, whatever, we wouldn't have like, we would have, I don't even know if we would have dreamed about that when I was listening to a Derek May set with 200 people in Detroit 20 years ago. So that, that fascinates me. And also to see why they're doing things their way. You know, there's no real right or wrong way to make or play electronic music as long as you're, I think, being, you know, you're doing something creative. You know, I hear of one or two other of the new big DJs who really like, yeah, well, they, you know, someone showed me, I just kind of play a song. I crossfade and play another song. To me, you know, that really isn't very creative. You know, that's just like a selector, you know, but I'm interested in people being very, deeply connected to these technological tools and kind of pushing their creativity through those.
1: The interesting thing, the interesting problem that I think you've faced in the past and you've actually done a really good job of succeeding with it is figuring out how to showcase what you're actually doing on stage, that something's happening Mm. in that performative aspect. And it's hard to figure Mm. out the way to get audiences to, if they want, to know, you know, what's going on and that there is a lot of things that you're doing up there
0: rather than just doing the crossfader. Yeah, I think everybody wants to look up on stage and see someone doing something. You know, if they see someone who they think is just checking their email or just someone there you know, also without any computer playing a CD or playing a record, talk, turning around, talking to his friend, having a smoke, and then playing another record, that's not very engaging. That's, you know, downright boring. You know, even if the music is incredible, after a while you can be like, okay, come on, like, excite me, uh, challenge me. And so, you know, that's the, the kind of the people I'm interested in seeing. And that's, you know, I want to find a way to connect you know, to the people in front of me, to the audience. You know, it's maybe it goes back to the early days when people said, man, Rich, what are you doing with this electronic music? This DJing's garbage, you know, it's that's not real music. You're not a real musician. So the guy with the guitar is a real musician more than me, you know? Like, I've done my 10,000 hours, you know? That guy can't go and touch and do what I do. So I guess that drives me to, you know, I want you know, every, any kid to be able to use technology, to be creative and be seen as a true artist. You know, it's not the tool. It's like what, you know, it's, it's what your intention is if you're actually channel, channel, channeling something from deep within you through that apparatus and coming up with something unique at the end. And that's the people I want to talk to or who I want to support on my label. Um, and why I would sit down and, and, you know, shoot the shit with with, with uh, Deadmau5 or whoever.
1: Um, talk about the Plastic Man live show, because I think that's the, probably the most large scale, I'm, you know, show that you've ever done and showing people that you were doing stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah,
0: well, I was kind of showing people that I was doing stuff, but I was actually this plastic man show. It was, uh, you know, a large scale thing, which was uh, a circular, well, half a circle LED screen. I was actually behind it, so nobody could actually see me. But the all the visuals you were seeing were were actually uh, synchronized and. Um, generated by what I was doing on my computers. And sometimes we would actually show images on the screen and kind of uh, show people cameras and what I was doing. So it, it's also playing with that. It's playing with the, the, you know, that in the heart of me, I loved getting into this because I was the introverted nerd who didn't want to get on stage, that I could be in the basement of my parents' house with this equipment and make stuff by myself. You know, and playing with that in front of an audience, you know, giving them some information, taking it back, playing, you know, it's, uh, it's also uh, kind of fun with that. But, um, you know, it's, it's also, there has to be some kind of like, um, what is it, like wizardry when you're watching an, an artist play that well, I, I don't know exactly know. But if it's all, you know, smoke and mirrors and you can't grab onto anything, then maybe... You know, that kid watching isn't going to, like, you know, delve in deeper. It may go off into something else. So that's why I feel I try to be engaged at quite a lot of points, you know, in my, in my career right now. And I also, like, for me, my biggest push right now is to have, like, full transparency to what I'm doing. You know, we, we developed a software called Twitter DJ which is a little program that runs in the background of my computer when I'm playing um, Tractor. Every time I play a record, uh, it actually posts to to my Twitter site so that people can actually be on the dance floor and and see what I'm playing. And I would like to have even more uh, transparency in the future and say, "This this is what I'm doing. Come on, check it out.
1: Did that change? from an earlier time when you were a little bit more secretive about what you were doing or was that always kind of, the I, th-
0: I think I was more, you know, there was a time when everybody was more secretive because the records it actually makes no sense, right? Cause those was at that time, nobody could get the record. So tell everybody you're not going to get it anyway. Now everybody can get it. And I tell everybody it's actually, you know, but, I was shy back then. I was like, you know, if people were standing in front of me, I was like, you know, I had a hood up. Uh, It was really difficult to play. Um, I think um, why I'm doing this is that I really feel there's um, some incredible artists out there using, you know, CDs or computers and doing incredible things and there's still a greater world out there that looks at our world and says huh, just a bunch of dumb DJs they don't take us seriously they don't feel that there's any depth that there's no integrity and so when I see something like EDM blowing up and seeing you know artists with no depth getting promotion and 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 getting uh, notoriety then it's important for I think people who are doing something interesting and creative to step up and say, okay, there's more than meets the eye to this EDM brand.
1: Why do you feel so compelled to kind of it's not defending it, but at least explaining it and being out there in front. I mean, there's a lot of artists who don't, aren't that compelled or interested in, you know, trying to raise the flag
0: or something. You know, I was, um, again, I was a kid sitting in front of a computer, by myself, and I found a way that that device could tap into my creativity. I never thought I was going to be a musician. Um, I thought maybe I'd be a programmer or something. Uh, but that, you know, that innovation of technology allowed me to be to do something that, I, that was really beyond my wildest dreams. And um, I want every kid to have that experience and have that option of not having to become whatever an accountant or, or well, like the normal things that parents perhaps want you to be to, to see this as a perhaps a viable career or at least something to like spend a lot of time in and, and have fun.
1: Let's talk about New York. The last time, I mean, this interview is 12 years in the making yeah. <laughs> basically the last time you were supposed to be part of the 2001 Red Bull Music Academy and that was happening during September mm. and something happened in yeah. September. Uh, but you were also living here around that time as well.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I was here on September 11th, um, waiting to to do the, the the Academy. I wasn't living here then. I, about two years later, I came to to New York at a, what seemed to be a pivotal time. There was a lot of interesting events happening in Manhattan and especially Brooklyn and early Williamsburg days. So that was... Um, yeah. um What were some of those events that were happening that were so inspiring? Man, just weird warehouse parties and crazy loft parties at, on white <laughs> So um was well, shortly before I left North America to go live in Berlin. But it was all kind of, you know, after September 11th, uh, there was like an, an initial thing where there seemed to be a, a lot of like you know, people were ready for something new and and but at the same time, there was kind of like this uh, change in, in freedoms and what you're able to actually do. And that's what ended up pushing many of us, I think, over to Europe, where we felt um, more connected to the scene and where there was more freedom to kind of express ourselves as, as electronic musicians and to explore where we were where we were going.
1: And you're still enjoying living, you're living in Berlin still? I don't
0: really live anywhere, you know, like I have my house in Canada and and I have an apartment in Berlin, but I'm traveling so much and, uh, you know, um, yeah, someone said to me, we were talking about like, what do you do after DJing? I was like, well, I don't know what... Um, what I'm going to do, but I'd like to find something to do that I can make enough money that I can still travel around the globe, meeting cool people and visiting places I've never been. Because I love that part of it also, like meeting, yeah, just people who are excited by the possibilities of of technology and creativity and music and and all these, uh, it's never a dull moment.
1: What technology is exciting you
0: at the moment? Hmm. Um, you know, touch technology and, 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 and uh, iPads and all this was kind of getting me for a while. But right now, coming back down to the, back to this transparency point, I'm very interested in how wireless technology, Internet technology can really bridge the gap between um, me and the audience, you know, uh, that can give further information, further insight to the creative moment. You know, like when we listened to Spastic earlier, that was a moment that I contained on a two-track reel-to-reel, and we can play it back, but there's very, there's very little data to that. Like, I can't even really tell you exactly what equipment I used or what effect settings there was, uh, uh, which is nice. I like that, but, you know, when that creative moment happens, especially for me on stage, I would, you know, love to have people being able to visualize that and perhaps that will inspire them to do something with that.
1: Um, Why don't we play another tune? Um, This is from uh, an album called
0: Closer, it's a disconnect. One of my happier tunes. (laughs)
1: Yeah. How do you get into the frame of mind where you're writing music like this? This is also a vocal tune,
0: which is, uh, um, yeah. Well, um, usually when I'm recording, I try to get sucked into a certain frame of mind. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, sometimes it's like you find uh, the equipment that you want to use and then you spend months just with that equipment, until kind of an epiphany hits and everything kind of comes together. I was trying to write this album, and I'd never done vocals before. And uh, I was just making stuff that sounded like my previous albums. And then for some reason, I started writing. And um, for about three months, I was writing lyrics, I guess. And then everything clicked together. And um, once the recording process was done, which was like and five i didn't think about i didn't think in lyrics anymore it was really strange it was really like my brain clicked and i couldn't you know stop writing and then one moment i couldn't write you know for the for the life of me so that's what 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 needed or wanted to come out on that album um and with that, all the plastic man albums there's always um a very, you know, the foundation is a 303. So there's always kind of an exploration of, can I take that TV 303 into a new area? So you have something like the early Plastic Man albums, Sheet One and music, which are very acidic. Then you have the kind of consumed area, which is more about architecture and space and about the echoes of the 303s. And then this one, you kind of get nearly like that machine, like you're sucked into the middle of that machine and you're hearing it talk so uh, but yeah that's why there's a big gaps between all my Plastic Man albums it's not something that you know um,
1: it's not a headspace you want to yeah, yeah I, don't want be, I don't want time. to
0: be live this album all, all the time you know but I'm glad I lived it and I'm glad each album really has its certain sound and that when i really feel that there's something to say with plastic Man and that project i'll record so it usually is four or five or six years in, in between and then it it it's um, an adventure for me and hopefully an adventure for for the, for the listener I, I,
1: judging I, by my calculations that
0: means i'm i'm o- we're overdue, overdue? <laughs> i'm definitely overdue but uh, yeah, I, I remember early on after the second album, Music, uh, that came out in like 95, there was a big push uh, or decision for me at that moment. It's like, okay, do I make Plastic Man my my project and just do I keep pumping out albums? Um, but I, I was like, well, I don't feel like doing another Plastic Man album right now. Now I feel like at that point doing this experimental concept series. And then after that, I was like, well... Now I want to, I spent so much time in the studio by myself, you know, that I was like, fuck, I really want to get on stage and just DJ again. And then I went on stage and I took my, some of the instruments that I used on the album, the, uh, the nine Oh nine drum machine and what my DP four effects processor, put it next to my turntables and then Dex effects nine Oh nine was born. So these all in my head just have continuity. They all kind of organically happened. And, uh, You know, the way I DJ now was something that I was really experimenting in the late 90s and early 2000s with the DE9 closer to the edit album and especially DE9 transitions. Those albums were produced. They're not live, but they kind of were the prototype of what I try to do when I'm in front of you guys, you know, now
1: with the different aliases was and you mentioned that there was an idea that you could continue to pump out plastic man albums was there any worry that all this momentum that i have built up with plastic man if i just stop doing it that mm. it's going to be a problem for bookings yeah. or whatever
0: yeah well i think you know there's you know plastic man i was working with um, mute records and uh, had some partners with that project and definitely some people were like well maybe you should just focus your attention on one thing, but, you know, um, I think, um, yeah, I think there's like a Houghton momentum and under Houghton, there's, you know, DJing and making records under plastic man. And, you know, there's this Ibiza thing. And so all these other dumb things I'm involved in, but it's what I like. And I have, if I have energy, if I like doing something, you know, then I'll spend hours, you know, kind of researching or practice practice i don't really practice djing but i spend a lot of time on it and usually i end up being you know pretty good at it because i i'll i'll just keep doing it if i love it you know so the other dumb things that you're involved in uh, i don't know like (laughs) i'm trying to think what i'm involved in right now um i don't you know (laughs) well i think that's a good stopping place
1: you'll be around for a little bit if anyone has a specific questions. Um, But for now, thank you very much, Richie Aughton. Thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. Okay, enough URLs for
0: now. Thanks for listening.